Hi, I'm Lindsay Pugh. And I'm Joe Nesterook. Welcome to the Woman in Revolt podcast. This is a place where we talk about film from a feminist perspective and try to highlight women in front of and behind the camera. Today, we're going to be talking about Juan Lopez Moctezuma's 1975 nunsploitation movie, Alucarda. It says on IMDb that it's 1977 or 78. And then I read somewhere else that it was 75. And Hmm. that's just kind of indicative of how little information there is about this director out there and how little information there is about this film, especially the production aspects of it. So we're we're kind of working with not a lot of pieces here because, at least in English, there just is not as much information as I would have liked to have. There is not. So there's going to be a lot of speculation, a lot of our own opinions in this episode. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So this will be probably a little bit less. We're not really going to have interviews to go off of here, unfortunately. I wish we did, but... There just are really not that many good things out there to pull from as primary sources. So maybe just to start, we'll tell you that we have been talking, Joe and I, about how we're just over summer. We are ready Uh. to get into autumnal feeling mindsets. And we want to do a long lead up to October, to Halloween on the podcast where we cover a bunch of different horror movies and we're going to start doing that now. So we hope you like horror because we're diving in with both feet. (laughs) What is the expression? Yeah, head first, both feet. I am a horror movie buff. I've loved it since I was a little kid and I'm already looking on the shelves in the store for pumpkin spice anything it's not there yet but i keep hoping because i know the minute i see something pumpkin spice we are officially there and every year it's earlier and earlier which annoys me with christmas but with halloween i would be fine if i saw halloween decorations on the shelves after fourth of july oh yeah july 5th i'm like thinking what am i going to put on my door for halloween absolutely i'm i'm in halloween mode why not same. And I'm, I would say, I always have a hard time calling myself a horror movie buff because I know people like you and like other friends who I would consider real horror movie people. I'm a little more, like, I don't have as widespread an appreciation for the genre. I feel like there are little pieces of it that I really enjoy and get into, but I also have a hard time appreciating certain aspects of it that I think true fans are able to embrace. So just to give you some idea of where I'm coming from, I feel like I have a narrower taste. Like there's a smaller set of movies that I enjoy within the wider genre. But you, Joe, I feel like you're able to like watch anything and and find something that you enjoy about it. Yeah, I could see that. I pretty much love anything horror. I do like some of the cannibal ones are the ones where people are held against their will and there's like flesh dripping in between the floorboards where they're being held. Those probably aren't my favorite type. I will watch those. But yes, I have to say, if you put horror somewhere in the description, I'm going to watch it. 
I'm not going to turn away. <laughs> I mean, I'm the one that my thing to get me through just the entire fiasco of Christmas is to make sure that I always do an exorcist rewatch during the Christmas holidays <laughs> just to keep me sane. We're eventually going to watch The Exorcist. Would you yeah. say that's your favorite horror movie? Yes. That, okay. I'm putting it out there. My absolute favorite horror movie is The Exorcist. And I know this is sacrilege, and this is going to piss probably a lot of people off, but The Exorcist is not one of my favorite horror movies. But I think I think okay, it's just... this podcast is over. I'm out. Bye. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think it's just, I, I didn't catch it at the right age. I think if I had seen it earlier, I didn't see it until, I don't know, maybe I was probably in high school. But I think if I had seen it as a kid, maybe it would have like gotten its hooks into me and really spooked me. But I don't know. There's just, I think also like not being raised, I was raised kind of religious, but my parents weren't particularly religious and I wasn't like forced into any compulsory religion and I've been an atheist for a very long time so I don't know I have I have a harder time with religious toned horror movies and this right. one is religious toned and we'll talk about that yes I being if anyone's listened to any of our previous podcast I probably mentioned this at least once in any of them that I was brought up in an evangelical background in the deep south so from the time that we could walk we were taught that the devil could enter you at any moment and take your soul so that's how I grew up you know what I'm saying like if I thought a bad thought I just knew Satan was going to come up through my bed at night and just suck me right down to hell so right yeah well, that's not going to scare the shit out of a child and give them oh, yeah. group and anxiety or anything yes and I, I was young when the exorcist came out i and there's no way i could have seen it i mean i was like six or seven i think or maybe eight when it came out i do remember people talking about it and being intrigued by it i think i saw it the first time it came on cable when cable first came out, I was probably 18 or 19. And literally, I slept with the lights on for like a week. Oh, man. Would it influence me like that now if I just saw it right now? And at this point in my life, no, I would still be shocked by some of the things that happened. But I think I think you're right. I think it depends on your upbringing and it's probably one of my favorite films just from the experiences and knowing the hysteria it caused when it came out. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense to me because I feel like every generation has those ultra-hyped horror movies where it's like people are passing out in the theater and oh, an ambulance had to, you know, like there's a, there's a, a lore around certain movies. And I can oh, totally yes. see it being that with The Exorcist, but I don't actually even know. I'm trying to think of like, what would it be for my generation? I mean, I, I don't feel like Scream, but Scream isn't, Scream is kind of funny. Scream yeah, isn't I, like the type of thing that scared the shit out of me as a kid. I'm going to be honest. I mean, your generation was brought up with so much more ways to access things. You were brought up more savvy. I just believe you were brought up less religious. So I just don't think that you can compare anything because I think as generations go on, I, I don't know. I think the exorcist may have been like a one-off, you know, like it just hit at the right time when no one had really seen anything like that in this country. And 
it's just one of those phenomena that just come along every so often in life. And it just hit at the right time, I think, and just got people where they were, you know, in 1973 when it came out. So, yeah. Yeah. The movies that really scared me as a kid were fucking stupid, like child's play. That scared me. I saw that at a sleepover when I was maybe, I don't know, seven, eight, something like that. And it terrified me to my core. And it's not a terrifying movie. I mean, same with Gremlins. Right. I, don't, I love Gremlins, obviously. But when I was a kid, Gremlins was like scary. Gremlins was like, ew, like it gave me like a visceral horror. But those are, you don't look back on The Exorcist and think like, oh, that's kind of a funny movie. But you do with these popular movies from my generation, at least the ones I grew up with. Right. I always feel like The Exorcist, they made you feel like this is plausible. Like even people that weren't religious is like, this could happen. Like, I do think the devil's in her. (laughs) Just because the acting is so good. Ellen Bernstein, and I mean, just. The way it's just like a slow burn and then they just slap you across the face. So, but we we will talk in depth about that movie. I I could go on and on about that. For sure. But it is interesting. The Alucarda is, I would even, I mean, okay, so Alucarda is a vampire movie. Alucarda is Dracula spelled backwards. But. To me, it's more of a possession movie than it is a vampire movie. Although as it progresses, it gets more, the the vampire themes become more and more prominent. But I think in that way, it does definitely remind me of The Exorcist, where it's, it's a possession by the devil that is kind of driving the force of the film. Exactly. I would have never off the bat associated this with a vampire there was definitely some things that reminded me of The Exorcist in this film. It definitely wasn't just copying off of that, but just a couple of things that touched on that. A vampire, I think you're right, as it went on, there was some scenes involving coffins and people coming back to life and such and such. So that, that did ring true. But I think it's very, I think the title of the movie is kind of interesting considering that there's to me just such a low-key vampire feel to this film yeah i think if you went into it not knowing that it was a vampire movie and not realizing that alucarda was dracula backwards you wouldn't think of it as a vampire movie yeah until i read that somewhere i had no idea it was a dracula spell backwards (laughs) i just didn't even come into play for me Yeah, you told me that. And then as I was, so I simultaneously, uh, as we were working on preparing this, I was reading Carmilla, which is an 1872 novel written by Sheridan Le Fanu that predates Dracula by 26 years. And it's the inspiration, although I would say very loosely, for Alucarda. And as I was reading that, one of the characters, Carmilla, goes by a bunch of different names that are all anagrams of Carmila. And after I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, duh, that's why they did that uh, for Alucarda, because it's a thing in Carmila where it comes into play multiple times. Oh, that's interesting. And I had never heard of that novel before you told me, which is a shame. 
And I had never heard of it either until I interviewed this other, actually, I don't even know what, what she calls herself. She has a podcast that's fantastic. It's called Girls, Guts, and Giallo. She's kind of a film critic, historian, writer, interesting person who knows a lot about movies. But her name is Annie Rose Malamet, and she was talking to me in an interview about Carmila. So I had known about it, like she had mentioned it to me a while ago, but I hadn't read it until recently. And she was the first person who brought it on my radar, which is so weird because you would think being a fucking English major, how could you not know about this seminal vampire work that predated Dracula? But it just maybe I got a shitty education. It never came up. Yeah, I've never heard of it, but I that's definitely on my to read list at this point. I can tell you that. And it's good. I think you'll enjoy reading it. And I will say to anyone who wants to read it, you have to get the version with the introduction and the edits by Carmen Maria Machado, who is a queer writer. And she she does this brilliant thing with how she reframes the novel so that you're thinking about it from a queer perspective. It's like she reinfuses the novel with all of the queerness that comes off as kind of homophobic in the Sheridan Le Fanu version. So definitely get that get that copy if you're gonna read it. It's I think the publisher is Lanternfish and I think it's a 2019 reprint. So Definitely. That for sure. Definitely. I know you sent me an interview of her and it was so good. And she's such a badass. You can just tell from this interview. I cannot wait to read how she changed this story. I was looking forward to it. Yes. And she is just a fantastic writer. If you're not familiar with her, I highly recommend checking out her work. She has a 2017 collection of short stories called, let me look it up so I don't fuck it up, Her Body and Other Parties. And she also has a memoir that came out somewhat recently that is called, I don't fucking know. You're just going to have to Google it. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you we'll be here all damn day. You'd think it'd be easier to find. Go down a rabbit hole. Learn about yeah, this In the person. Dream House is her memoir, and it came out in 2021. So just small plug for her work. Go check her out. She's amazing if you don't know her writing. Excellent. Well, Lindsay, right. let's, let's dive into this thing. Give us a little plot synopsis of Alucarta. <laughs> yes. So the plot is very simple, but I'll try to just kind of set the scene for you so you can picture what you're going into with this film. It opens on a woman played by Tina Romero who has just given birth and she knows she's going to die. So she asks this old man, who I think is referred to as like the hunchback or the, quote, gypsy, who is for some reason there with her in this kind of crypt-like building. And she gives him the child named Alucarda, and she tells him, hey, take this child to the convent. She says, don't let him take her away. 
And it's sort of implied, I think, that she's talking about an evil force or Satan or something that she doesn't want to get her baby. So after the old man leaves with the baby, she gets taken over by this evil force, I think. There are, the way the scene is shot is brilliant. There are all of these really erratically cut close ups of things. Like there are these cobweb statues of, I think, Pan, maybe, or like a Pan like figure. And there are these close ups of her face. And the soundtrack is like a slithering death rattle like noise. And she dies. And then the credits roll for the opening title. And after that happens, the film jumps forward 15 years, and you see Alucarda, who is also played by Tina Romero, and she's been living at this convent. And on this day, a new girl named Justine, played by Susanna Camini, comes and arrives, and Alucarda instantly bonds with her. They are BFF slash lovers, question mark, pretty much immediately. So when the two are out frolicking together, they stumble upon the crypt where Alucarda's mother died, and they unwittingly, or maybe even wittingly, release a satanic force that possesses them and wreaks havoc upon the convent. And as we mentioned, the film was directed and co-written by Juan Lopez Moctezuma, and it's become sort of a cult classic over the years especially following a 2002 DVD release from the media distributor Mondo Macabro. And I would say if you can find that DVD, I think it's still sold from Mondo Macabro. I think you can order it from them, but it seems like it has a lot of good extras and interviews and special features. So I think check it out if you have a DVD player and you're interested in that kind of thing. There are some underlying themes, obviously, in this film that are breaking free from tradition, i.e. the Catholic Church, and burning it all down in an attempt to embrace individuality, a.k.a. queer identity, atheism, just not being like everyone else around you. And there are also, of course, vampire elements to it. And it fits within the non-sploitation genre, which we will also talk about. So hopefully that gives you some idea of where this film is centered and what it's about. Where we found it was on YouTube. I will say that it is a really bad way to see it because it is just not good quality. But it is on YouTube. For free, it was done, I believe it was one of these type films where they recorded it in in a couple of different languages, but this one is in English on YouTube. I think that they recorded it in English, but, and I also don't know, I wish I could find why they did that. As I understood it, like Moctezuma was living at the time between Mexico and the U.S., and I think one of his later films was a co-production with Hollywood. So I wonder if he had thought filming it in English would help with distribution. I'm not sure what the rationale behind that was. I think that that's probably it. Honestly, I do. He felt like it would have a better chance of getting to audiences, getting distribution probably. 
And I guess at this point in his career, is this his third film? Right. He only did, what, five films total. Very interesting man that you can't find really much about in in our research. We could not. But I think he only did five films and, what, three that are really were released or had any type of chance of you seeing them. Right. And the first film that he did is The Mansion of Madness. Again, when I looked at the dates for these I was seeing conflicting things, so I think it was 1973, but that one is an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation, and then his next film was called Mary, Mary, Bloody Mary in 1974, and I believe that was the film that was a Hollywood co-production, so that did get U.S. release and distribution, so I think of his films... Alucarda, which has become kind of a cult classic, and Mary, Mary, Bloody Mary are the easiest ones to see. Like, I think you can buy a DVD and see those. I don't believe any of them are streaming anywhere other than, you know, a torrent or YouTube. He also died fairly young, I think right around 60. He died. He had a lot of apparently physical ailments, um, maybe mental ailments. So I think his career just by that was cut short. But Lindsay, what were you telling me earlier? He had some really interesting projects just a few years before his death that we were both saying, boy, we wish he had gotten into those. Yeah, they sounded so cool. One of them was, I think, a film called El Alimento del Miedo which was based on a real case of a woman in the 1950s or 60s who was caught selling tamales containing human flesh. So that sounded really cool. And then the other one was a TV pilot called Yoel Vampiro, which I think was going to be short episodes based on classic horror stories by authors like Edgar Allan Poe. So we were saying it kind of sounded like the horror version of the Shelley Duvall fairy tale theater. If anyone is familiar with that show, it kind of sounds like the horror version of it. And I really wish it would have happened. Me too. It just sounds like health and eventually death prevented him from doing that. But it sounds like he was maybe on the verge of, of a new creative period when all of a sudden he wasn't able to do it. So. I found it very interesting. I know that he was born in Mexico City, 1932, and he was the son of a judge. And that his family originally wanted him to study law, but, I mean, he rebelled, of course. He just must have had this wild creative streak. And then I believe it talked about he became involved in painting and then the theater and eventually took him into radio and TV work. And he created a radio program, Panorama de Jazz, on Radio UNAM, that even though he left it after a few years, it became an institution in Mexico, and it ran for like 35 years. I just found that an interesting part of his legacy. Yeah, he seemed like a very well-rounded, creative person. He got into filmmaking 
by making short films. And I believe he was working at a production company making short films. But it was also really hard in the 60s to get into the film industry in Mexico. So he went to work as an assistant to a famous stage director named Seki Sano. Through that theatrical work, he ended up meeting Alejandro Jodorowsky, who's a French Chilean director. And at the time, Jodorowsky was making a name as an avant-garde stage director. But I believe shortly after they met, he ended up making his film. Uh, which one did he do first? I think Fondo Elise, right? Yes, I have seen that film. It is wild. And that's one I have, that's one I unfortunately have not seen, but I have seen El Topo, which is the next film. And Moctezuma was a producer on both of those films. So he did get to work with Jodorowsky. And I think if you are familiar with Jodorowsky's work, I mean, I'm not that familiar with Moctezuma's. I've only seen Alucarda, but from what I see in Alucarda, I definitely see the Jodorowsky, surrealist, Louis Bunuel-type influence in his approach to filmmaking. Yes, I agree with that. Jodorowsky, I watched, I know I saw at least two or three of his films. I just went through a weird time during COVID where I needed to just lose myself in a film, and it was a strange experience. It was like tripping without being on anything. It was really an experience. I really enjoyed it. His films are off the hook, so. Yes, and I think I've seen, I've seen everything after El Topo. Although I'm now looking at his filmography, I have not seen, I guess he has one in 2019 called Psychomagic, a healing art. I haven't seen that either, but otherwise I've seen his filmography and I think he is insanely weird and I kind of love it. It doesn't always work for me, but I really love The Holy Mountain. I think that is a fantastic film. I really love The Dance of Reality and El Topo. I would say those are my favorite. Chodorowsky movies, but... I think I saw Holy Mountain was another one that I saw of his. I believe I saw that one. Yeah, I I think I remember (laughs) you texting me about it. (laughs) Probably. I was probably like, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) And the dance of reality is the one where somebody pees on someone else. So you would remember that. You would remember the peeing scene from that one. Yes, I... Don't believe I saw that, but I'm writing this down because <laughs> I have watched someone take a two minute crap on film. So <laughs> next should be the P. Yeah, to be <laughs> completest. To be complete all bodily functions happening yeah. on film. I need to be there. <laughs> what's the? I, you definitely told me about this, but what's the one where someone shits on someone? Oh, my gosh. I knew you were going to ask me, and I cannot I even. I did in our text messages, but I can't. We'll I, find it. We'll let, hey, I tell you what. I'll find it, and then you can put it in the show notes if anyone yeah. wants to go to it. It's a pretty so, famous yeah. film. Look at the show notes to find out where you can watch a scene yes. of someone shitting on someone yes. else. It, I'm sure it, there are well, multiple movies. It, I have to say, it is a man, and he didn't shit on someone else, but we definitely see him just squatting and taking a crap. So if you want to see that, we'll put it. Oh, oh, he doesn't even shit on someone. He just No, he just pulls down his pants and takes crap. Okay. Yep. All right. 
Interesting. <laughs> yes, and it's not porn. No, no, it it is a, I, I just cannot think of it right now, but it is a well-known director and it's kind of a famous scene and a wonderful actor. And it's just a weirdness that somehow works in the film, believe it or not. It's, I don't know. Yeah, I know we talked about it. I'll, it'll, it'll be rattling around until you, until you look it up and tell me. Yes, which I would definitely do. But yes, so. Well, anyway, Getting, getting, getting back from taking a poop. Yeah. I guess we should also maybe just tell you that there are some other films that if you've seen them, you would think, oh, that influenced this film or that had to have come out around the same time as this film. I thought it just could be helpful to give you some context that Ken Russell's The Devils, which is also a non-sploitation film came out in 1971 then the exorcist was 1973 so you have like those two films predating alucarda i would say alucarda was clearly influenced by both although of course we can't really find an interview with moctezuma talking about any of this so i'm just guessing right also i mean Black Narcissus that came out in 1947 i just recently saw that film a few months ago and i definitely believe there was some influences there that that is a wonderful film as well yeah paul and pressburger are very cool i actually have not seen that many of their films and i have not seen black narcissus oh no oh you've got yeah. to see it i know you told when you told me that i added it to my list immediately oh the cinematography but, on that is off the hook it's I'm so good. sure I just, the film of theirs that I really love is The Red Shoes, which is 1948. Mm. But yeah, so there are a lot of films, I would say, that came out before this film that were doing the same kind of thing. But I feel like this film is unique mostly for the aesthetics and the performance by Tina Romero. Oh, yeah, she was wonderful. We both said without her, this film would have never been anything of what it is today as far as being a cult classic. She was wonderful in this film. And I sadly have not seen her in anything else, I don't think. Have you seen... So she, she was primarily in a bunch of Mexican films and telenovelas, but she was in some American films in the 80s, including a film called Missing with Sissy Spacek. Have you seen that? I did. I, I think I, yeah, it's a good film from what I remember. I saw it at the theater. I do not remember. I'm sorry. I don't remember Tina Romero in the film. I don't, it's been so long. I'm sure that if I saw it again, it would stand out to me a little bit more. But from what I remember, The Missing was a very good film. And she's also in something called Miracles which came out in 1986. The director did not say that. Jim Koo? Yeah, I don't know didn't if I'm saying that. that right. You saw that? I did not. Okay. Yep. Well, I think those are the only two. And so she's, she's amazing in this, though. Her performance is so... Well, well, we'll talk about it in a bit. But it just, without it, as Joe said, I think I wouldn't have really been able to pay attention to this film. She's what really drew me in. Right. Is there anyone, while we're just talking about people who are in it, is there anyone else 
that we want to highlight. I mean, Susan Kamini, who plays Justine, she is good. And she's also in Moctezuma's The Mansion of Madness, his first film. And then she's also in Mary, Mary, Bloody Mary, his second film. But other than that, she doesn't really seem to have a ton of additional credits, at least not anything I'm familiar with. So I don't know too much about her. And again, there's just not a lot, at least available in English online. Right. To be honest, I mean, the other performances were okay. It just seemed like Tina Romero was a force for me. I just couldn't keep my eyes off of her. I was rooting for her. She brought the devil in. She was with the devil, 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 devil. But I wanted her to wipe out that whole fucking place and just go in up to the sky in a blaze of glory. That's what I wanted for Tina Romero <laughs> to be victorious because I just felt like she was rebelling against what we would think is a very restrictive life of being a nun. So I got that feel from it, and I feel like her performance just kind of just took over for me. I mean, everyone else was fine, but no one else really stood out to me. I agree, because you have this character of Alucarda, whose mother wanted so desperately for her to not be taken away by satanic forces or whatever. So she put her in this convent to keep her safe, but... Alucarda ended up being repressed by that, and in order to break free, she needed to embrace Satanism. Like, Satanism is what liberated her from the confines of the convent. And I think that's a cool thing. Like, I, I love to see it. People embracing Satan and then that leading them to get out of this hellscape life that they're stuck in. But I would say what bothered me, and you've already mentioned this, is that she's not victorious in the end. She's vanquished and turns into a pile of dust. So right. right. You don't get to like celebrate her victory and see her have some amazing independent life where she gets to have sex with as many women as she wants and mm, do whatever she wants. She dies. Exactly. Exactly. And that is not to somehow discount the other actors that were in the film. I know there are some more other notable people that were in the film, but just clearly my focus was on her for sure. It's really hard to take your eyes off of her, not only because she is beautiful, but she's so, she has like that intoxicating energy. I'm sure everybody has at some point in time met the type of person who just has the type of personality that has the ability to pull you in and create an entire world for you. Have you ever mm -hmm. been around a person like that, that they're just like intoxicating? Their energy is just like you want to soak it up because what yes. they create is like magical. Yes. She is not, like not enough. Not enough in life. Same. I wish that I had more people like that, but I have had a rare instance to be around someone like that. Yeah, and it's usually the type of thing, at least in my experience, that doesn't have longevity. Like, right. You know, it's like for one amazing night and then that you spend more time with that person and you're like, oh. It's yes, it's too much. You, Yeah. But yeah, it's too much. It's like 
There's just some things, just like a good one-night stand, there's just some things that just need to happen in the moment and don't beat a dead horse. Just exit gracefully and take take the magical experience with you because if you're around anyone too much longer than that, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> yes, exactly. You can't overstay your welcome when it comes to certain experiences because they go from amazing and they tip into something else. So you got to cut ties before it starts to turn. Exactly. And I, I think that's kind of what happened between Alucarda and Justine. I think Justine was totally wrapped up in her energy and her playfulness. There's scenes where they're running in the woods and they're frolicking and they're, they just felt free probably for the first time in their lives as women to do what they want to do and it was taken in but you know she got a little justine got a little too close to that flame of alicardo and just like the moth she got burned literally (laughs) and figuratively and that brings me to just some of the visuals of this film i think that was one of the most striking things to me is some of the visuals, such as, for example, the way that the nuns were dressed. I mean, basically, they were dressed like mummies, all wrapped up in bloody bandages. I mean, what did you get get from that when you saw that? Yeah, it was really interesting to me. They almost looked like maxi pads or or (laughs) huge tampons or something because... They were wrapped in this like white or yellowish gauze and it had blood soaking through in certain areas. And I was noticing as I was watching, it seemed like the concentration of blood was on. So their skirts had tiered ruffles and it seemed like the blood was concentrated on the front of the tiered ruffles, you know, right near the vagina. So I was like, is this a menstrual thing? But then later we see the nuns getting flagellated. So it's also like, okay, well, they're probably getting flagellated multiple times per week at least. So they probably are just constantly bleeding, not only because of their wounds, which are for repentance or whatever the fuck, but also because they're women and they have menstrual periods. So I thought it was a cool way to constantly remind you even though they were very covered up that they are women it was putting putting that blood and that that brand of femininity out there i guess yeah and how they were just bound so tightly like bound to the church bound to the religious dogma that basically puts its boot heel on women to keep them in line. I I felt very restricted by that. I know one, I know that's my new goal for a Halloween outfit. That would just be absolutely perfect. Oh, wouldn't it be fun if we could dress up like that and go somewhere? I know. The people in the know would know and the people that wouldn't know would just think we were mummies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We could find, we could find some magical people that way, but Honestly, I, uh, I I felt like that was so interesting. That set the tone for me going in that this was going to be a different type of film. You mentioned something earlier when we were talking about this before we started recording that I thought was interesting on the flagellation, how it just wasn't the nuns doing it, but also there was a priest or a monk or one of the men that was also flagellating himself. And and we thought that that was unusual because we would think in something like this, it would be the men just flagellating the women. 
Yes, and I don't know, I, I wish I could go back and watch that scene, but did you notice, are any of the women flagellating each other? Mm. I don't remember that. I seems like they were just doing it to themselves. But and I think at one point the wrong. priest was flagellating one of the nuns. But I don't I don't believe we see a nun flagellating the priest. No. And I also I only watched this one time, so I yeah, could for, be wrong. Yeah, he was definitely doing it to himself. So that's a good thing. I'll have to go back and double check that. But that was something to I feel like it took scenes like that and other scenes as we progress on as Alucarda gets more possessed and just more wild and it starts alarming people and it goes from, you know, Alicardi, you've got to calm down to she's possessed. We got to hop on this and get rid of the possession. It becomes much more bloody. Blood seems to be a huge part of this. They end up putting Alicardi and Justine nude, completely strip them, of course, put them nude on a cross in Jesus fashion. And uh, then they start, I think with Justine, it was the one that one of the nuns takes a sharp instrument and starts poking holes all in her body and blood's running down to try to bleed the evil out of her. So it goes into something that is so ancient and barbaric that I do think the director in a way was just trying to show how barbaric religion and especially the Catholic Church is and has been in their treatment of people, especially women, and just their ignorance of how to handle a situation like this. Yeah, and I believe you see an earlier scene where Justine is in bed and is the doctor putting leeches on her? Yes. So I think in that moment, the doctor who definitely represents like science and reason in different parts of the film, but then it kind of gets complicated with how things end. And we can talk about that. But it's interesting that it goes from the doctor with science and reason still using leeches to take the toxins out of her blood or whatever it's like it's like a different version like almost like a flip side of the whole poking and so it's interesting how whenever i actually hadn't really thought about this so sorry if this is a half-baked thought but it's interesting how the doctor is doing that and then when he comes in later and he sees the nun poking the holes in justine i think he says something like this is so barbaric and antiquated and like anti-science and based on old mythologies. And it's like, dude, you were just putting leeches on her. You were yeah. basically doing the same thing. You were trying to get the toxins out of her blood and they're trying to get the evil out via her blood. It's, it's both like antiquated bullshit nonsense. And I thought that was interesting because, again, you think that the doctor is supposed to be the level-headed, reasonable science one, but it's like even he is has fucked up ways of thinking about things that aren't accurate. It almost seems like the director is is poking at not only the institution of religion, but the institution of science to say you're both just full of shit and you don't really know everything that's going on and you're both 
out of your lane. Uh, just like sure. maybe provocative to be provocative to for the shock factor because we know he was trying to bring that shock factor. Yeah, I mean, I play. also thought though for someone, and again, like I don't exactly know what what Moctezuma had going on in his life. Certain articles talk about Alzheimer's. Other ones talk about depressive episodes and mental health issues. But I am sure that at the time he was dealing with this. Doctors, I mean, doctors are still not really well equipped to deal with mental health issues. So imagine what it was like in the 60s and the 70s in Mexico. I can't imagine it was very sophisticated. So I'm sure he had a lot of pent up frustrations toward psychiatry and scientific institutions from his own experience. I'm just kind of guessing and extrapolating. I don't know that for a fact. I like that. No, I I hadn't thought about it like that, but that probably was, I mean, we know that he was drawing on a lot. Anyone that's a director is going to draw on their own experiences in life, and some of that is going to come through in their film. And I feel like he believed he was the auteur, and I really think that he put a lot of himself in there, so I could totally see that being part of his reasoning. Same. And I think maybe that's why Maybe that's why the theme of science versus religion, to me, gets a little muddied. Maybe it's because we expect it to be like science coming in and saving the day and science being the voice of reason. But because of how he feels with his own experience, potentially, it's more complex than that. It's not like science is good and religion is bad. There are more gray areas, especially when it comes to the treatment of science in the film. So I think that's actually pretty interesting. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. Oh, yeah. It doesn't sound half-baked at all to me. I mean, I I really like that. I think it adds some dimension to the film and where he was coming from. One thing that I found interesting was the aspect of, and I believe we read that this was very common in a lot of the non-exploitation films, which were akin to a lot of women in prison (laughs) exploitation films, is the whole vibe of having a lot of women living very closely together, being supposedly celibate or being called to be celibate, the sexual tension, which in this film, it, it seems like they equated somehow this attention and the, these problems with lesbianism. So I'm just curious on your thoughts. Do you, what do you think he was trying to say with the relationship between Alicarda and Justine? What was he trying to say about lesbianism in general? Was he, was it a bad thing about it? Was it a, was he trying to mock the church for trying to turn it into a bad thing? What are your feelings on that? I don't know. It's interesting because to go back to Carmila, Carmila is the same type of premise where it's these two women end up meeting and they have this instant connection and they just really feel close to each other. And then it ends up turning toxic and turning vampiric and becoming something that is insidious and that is really harming one of the women. So in that sense, I think it can be read as lesbianism and Satanism sharing some common ground. 
but I also don't feel like the film really excoriates it. I I almost feel like the film just uses it as another way to be shocking and provocative. But I don't really feel like Moctezuma is making some kind of grand statement on lesbianism. Mm -hmm. I didn't really feel like there was, I didn't walk away from it feeling like he was being overtly homophobic or that he was holding it up and celebrating it. I just felt like it was a thing being used for provocation Mm -hmm. and not too much else. And that's kind of where I feel like we need a Carmen Maria Machado figure to come in and really queer this narrative Mm -hmm. and make it so that lesbianism is the liberator, like the ultimate liberator for these women. I think that would be interesting that would give it more of a point of view than it has. What did Mm -hmm. you think? Oh, I think so. I really think we had briefly discussed this. What if a woman had directed this? You know, what if a woman had had some say in what went on the movie? And I think that that would have been a very interesting theme to take forward. I think there would have been a lot of differences in the film. One thing that I hope would have happened, I mean, this film, it it was to shock and provoke, but there is a lot of screaming in this film. I will warn you, if you have not seen it, just get ready, because these women are screaming from the time this film starts to the time it ends. I've never heard so much. So, but I know that 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 was the main thing, but I, I think looking at it from today's lens and what if a woman could step in and change this, I just feel like there would be so much more, I don't want to say fodder, but there would be so much more to take in other than just the shock value. And the, the overall vibe is, is really interesting. So Lindsay, you had mentioned earlier that you kind of took it, the film as as providing a really good vibe, more so than intricate plots or things to think about. But I think that a woman could step in and really give us some good meat on the bone as far as how we should be receiving this film and the statements that it would make on several things, sexuality, repression, the church, patriarchy. It's really a story that could have been unfolded a lot deeper, I think, if a woman was at the helm. Yeah, for sure. I think as it stands, this is a good movie to smoke a little weed and watch women lick blood off each other's tits. Like, that's what <laughs> that's what this movie is. It's a vibe movie, if you will. You know. You know but I don't think it goes much deeper. For me, I'm left feeling like I want there to be more. I want there to be a point of view when it comes to sexuality. I want there to be more of a point of view when it comes to the church. And again, like Joe and I were talking about this before we started recording, we don't know what censorship was like when this film was being made. I know that it was when it was released in Mexico, it was shocking and people were scandalized because obviously it's a Catholic country, and this is excoriating Catholicism in many ways. But for a modern viewer, it doesn't feel like it's doing much more than provoking. Mm -hmm. And we think that if somebody really came at it and had strong things to say about 
all the things that Joe mentioned, sexuality and repression in the church and female relationships, it would have more, yeah, more meat on the bone, like you said. And the director may, if he was alive, he may be sitting here shaking his head going, no, 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 that's exactly what I didn't want to do. I wanted just for it to be provocative. You know, I don't know what his, I can't say for sure without being able to find more about him what his original intent was. So the message he was trying to say may have been exactly what he, what we were presented with, which is an overall vibe, provocative film, something that takes us to so many places but doesn't really resolve anything or leave us with any truths coming out of it. I will say that I do dislike the way the film ended, which was basically everything gets on fire, you know, everything blows up in flames, and it's it's one where Alucarda subscums in the flames, and it seems to be that good triumphs over evil. And that's just kind of a trope that I'm like, huh. It was kind of, whoo, all the fire and, you know, seeing nuns roll around on fire and people catching on fire. I mean, that was very provocative and just like, damn, this thing is blowing up. That's what I was thinking in my head. Like, my gosh, look at everything happening. But it just seemed a little too tried and true of good triumphing over evil at the end for me. That's one thing I would have changed. I wanted Alucarda to rise up out of the ashes and laugh or something and for it to end like that, where you think she's been resurrected. I don't know. I just didn't want it to end with Justine is dead. Alucarda is dead. Isn't the one nun who tried to be nice to Justine? She's dead. Like anyone in this film who had any sort of intrigue is dead. Right. I do have to say the nice nun, basically Justine, and this was kind of a cool visual. When they come in, she's in a coffin and she's floating in blood. Here we start seeing more of the vampire theme. She comes alive. She kind of starts biting and eating the the goody good nun. And the goody good nun is, you would think that she would eventually survive the film because you've always got that one goody good female that survives, but she didn't. So that, I mean, I'm not saying that I celebrate a good person or a bad person's death, but I did celebrate that she died. I thought that that was a good (laughs) thing in the movie. Like, yeah, even the goody-goody died here. This is great. Yeah, no one's getting out of this hellscape alive, except for the doctor and his daughter, we assume. Yeah, and let's talk about the, the doctor's daughter is the one that once Justine subscums to Satan and supposedly dies but she's really the undead the doctor's daughter is introduced to alicarda and and becomes alicarda's new muse and she's blind which we thought was kind of an interesting characteristic to add and i just wondered what did you think about them portraying her as a blind person i guess i was wondering why It's not like the actress who plays her is blind, so they made a deliberate choice to have this character be blind. And I wondered, is it supposed to be a metaphor for 
her not being able to see the real Alucarda? Or is it just to make her seem more vulnerable to Alucarda's manipulations? I wasn't really quite sure what the efficacy was of making her blind. It seemed like something that was an intentional decision, so there had to be some rationality behind it. And I also kind of wondered, is it, is it, yeah, is it just supposed to be a metaphor for how she's perceiving the situation, or is there something else going on? And it didn't really feel like the film went anywhere with it. She does end up falling down the stairs at the end when the convent is on fire. That's actually kind of a really weird scene, because she's very clearly falling in slow motion. Do you know what I mean? Like, you Yeah. She's very carefully, deliberately, like, slow-mowing her movements. <laughs> but she gets out alive, and there's really, like, not much to say about her as a character other than she treats Alucarda nicely in the brief interaction we see them have. So, I don't know. What did you think? One of my thoughts was, is this some type of nod to Frankenstein because I know there was a scene in Frankenstein where there was a blind man and Frankenstein comes in and he treats Frankenstein kindly because he cannot see the hideous monster and Frankenstein also treats him kindly. So that there was a in that film there was a definite lesson of if you just treat someone kindly, then they're going to treat you kindly. So I don't know if it was some type of nod to that, but what played out between them definitely was nothing like the movie Frankenstein because she did, it seemed, terrorize this young blind girl. So I don't know if it was just she was blind to make her more susceptible to being terrorized or it would somehow be more provocative like, oh my God, this poor little blind girl and she just can't get away. And it it was even more shocking just to make her blind and seem more helpless and innocent because she's blind, you know, which sounds horrible, but I could see some people thinking that. So I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting point. And anyone listening, if you've seen the film and you have an opinion on that, please let us know what you think, because I really can't say for sure why. Yeah, and I feel like, again, this is not something I've thought too deeply about as of yet, but ableism in horror movies, we've talked a little bit about that with our one friend, Andrew. And I do think it's it's interesting. I kind of wonder, and again, I'm not, I feel like my knowledge of horror isn't good enough that I'm able to off the top of my head be like, that movie, that movie, that movie. But I wonder if there are a bunch of other movies that ostensibly have a blind character who is meant to represent some larger metaphor. Like, I think maybe would it be interesting to look at blindness or deafness or differently abled people in horror cinema and how they are treated? I know there are scholars out there that have done really interesting work on this topic, but I wonder if there have been things specifically said about blind people in horror movies. Right. When you were talking about disabled people, I instantly thought about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where one of the characters is in a wheelchair, and it really focuses on that. Yeah, that's for sure one that we will have to get into 
when we talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because we are going to do that film. Maybe. Are we going to do it next? Maybe, because, you know, we have to do it. Yeah. I mean, we do have a book that we're reading for that one. We're trying to get more context for the time period, especially for me. I feel like I need more of that to build my understanding of the film. And there's a really good book. Can you think what the title is off the top of your head? I cannot. It is. And I'll be impressed as hell. I think it's, it's a long one. Yeah, that's something. Some, some, something, something, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the film that terrified a rattled nation. The author is Joseph Lanza. Right. So that is upcoming. I just, we were talking about disabled people that popped in my head because the actor that was in the wheelchair, he was a big focus of that film, I felt like, for a lot of the film. And his, just his experiences of being in the wheelchair and how it played out. So, yeah, that may be. I would be interested to know how that plays into different horror films. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and also like the eyes of Laura Mars. Isn't that the whole thing where this lady's blind, but she's having these these psychic flashes of premonitions of people getting killed? So I know that's another big one. There's also that other one that is uh, with Jessica Alba. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I think I remember it being bad, but... um, I can't think of what it's called. We may do a whole another series after Halloween on. Oh, it's called the eye. (laughs) The eye. Yeah. There you go. Well, anyway, that's just a little, that's just a little aside. Yes. Deep dive off to the side of that. Yeah. I just thought that that was an interesting characteristic to put in this film. If I had to guess and just say, what it was, I think he maybe just added in a disability for the shock value of this poor blind girl being hurt, taken advantage of, swept up by the devil. But Potentially, or even, I thought maybe just for the surrealist aspect of it, because when we're first introduced to her, I didn't realize that she was blind. Mm -hmm. I just kind of thought that she seemed... I thought something seemed strange about her and her relationship with the doctor who turned out to be her dad. Mm-hmm. But I read it more as like, was she in this convent for some specific reason? Were they giving her an exorcism or were they doing something to her that impacted her mentally? Like, I wasn't quite sure how to read it when we first met her. So then right. to find out that she was blind. I was like, oh, OK. Hmm. Interesting. I, I didn't pick up on that initially. Right. Yeah, it was very interesting. Just a little side character that wasn't in the film that long, but kind of made a a little bit of an impact on me. Just what her exact role was and how she was apparently standing in a little bit for Justine, maybe. It would have been interesting. I would have liked to have seen it taken further and her be possessed. She never was possessed in the film. She always seemed to get away. Maybe that, maybe her blindness protected her in some way. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. On and on. (laughs) Gave her a purity. Maybe it goes back to the virginal thing somehow. Yeah, I think there's probably, there's probably a bunch of shit you could say about it if you dig a little deep into it. 
because we know women, if we have carnal urges, we're going to get possessed. (laughs) Yeah. Just one other thing I thought was interesting, and I'm now trying to think of whether it's true because I can't remember where I read this, but someone was talking about the wardrobe in Alucarda and how it's interesting to see Alucarda wear the same thing the entire time. You'll see Justine changes clothes, but Alucarda is always in this long black dress. And the person who wrote this thing that I can't remember where I found it was talking about how obviously there are some old Hollywood movies that do this where they have the protagonist in the same outfit throughout to make them a focal point. But they were saying that Possession, the Andrzej Zulowski film, I'm saying that wrong, but whatever, that that film does it as well. And I was trying to think, is it true? Is she in that long purple dress the entire movie? From what I remember, she is, except when they rip her clothes off and she's nude for a lot of the film. But I do believe that she does pretty much keep the same wardrobe, which is interesting because it does kind of focus you in on her when some when you can identify someone subconsciously with the same outfit over and over and over. And I think maybe having the same, here we go, I'm, I'm going off now, here we go. I think maybe having on the same outfit allows any change in her behavior to be more of a stark contrast. Yeah. Yeah, so let's say that, you know, as she became more demonic and crazy, her wardrobe became more red or more white. I think somehow that may take away from her transformation. So maybe just keeping her in the same robes, it almost forced her to morph even more in her performance to stand out. I don't know. Maybe it's ju- it just makes more of a contrast. I don't and know. I think it being such a visually wild film where it honestly is sometimes kind of hard to focus on plot because there's so much visual stuff happening and the editing style of the film is so erratic and it it is very like Boonwell where you have those rapid fire edits to a close-up and then a medium shot and then it's so it's kind of hard to focus and I think if she had changed wardrobe it would be hard maybe to like center her in some scenes but because she's always wearing black you always are able to find her easily right right I think that was very important. It had something to do with it. I did find it interesting how many times people were stripped of their clothes. It just all tied into that eroticism. Even when they were shrieking in agony, it almost sounded orgasmic, how that just all kind of flowed in together. The way that the nuns were praying, the nuns just were writhing all over the floor and everybody was all over the place and it just seemed like a big orgy like I got a big orgy feel off the entire last 10 minutes of the movie (laughs) oh totally and I mean then there was that explicit orgy where it was like Alucarda and Justine marrying Satan yeah with all those people from the town, like the, I'm doing quotes, gypsies, that's how they refer to them in the film, they were all there and they were all naked. And yeah, there were just people fucking and rolling around and licking each other. And yeah, 
But you're right, the convent scenes with the nuns felt just as explicit, even though they right. weren't actually fucking. It, it was erotically charged in the same way, just tenser in the convent. Yeah, almost like les- lesbianism, it almost was like a masturbation, and masturbation is taught to be wrong and you don't do that, but it almost seemed like that was kind of what was going on with the nuns and... Yeah, very provocative. I mean, they always say sex sells and it's provocative. So I'm sure that's why all these scenes were highly sexualized, it seemed to me. And I think also if you're so repressed that you can't actually have an orgasm, maybe you are flagellating yourself in some way just to feel something. Yeah. <laughs> because if you can't come, at least you can feel something. I think in this repressed fucking environment, even feeling pain would be preferable to feeling nothing. Right. So I think, yeah, just again, it it becomes a visual stand-in for that environment, that repressive environment. Yeah, kind of a way to take control of a situation where you have no control over your life or your body or anything that you want to do with it. You know, at least you can make yourself feel pain. Yeah. And they want you to. That's okay <laughs> for you to do that. So. That's approved. Church approved. Church approved. (laughs) Was there anything else that we did not talk about that we should talk about? No, I think just one other little random tidbit. I I really couldn't find a lot of information about the experiences of the actors making the film or working with this director. I was really curious in that, like, what was it like to work on the set? But the one thing that I did find, and hopefully, this is fact about what I'm saying, but I did read where one of the actresses playing a nun was actually severely burned in this final scene where all this fire was. And then I read where Tina Romero said that she was actually overcome by smoke with smoke inhalation and that the only reason she felt like she was okay and and got out alive is one of the actress playing a monk saw her struggling and like got her away from the scene so that just made me think like what was going on like was there any type of oversight or was it just like hey we're gonna burn some shit over here try not to get too close roll around a little bit (laughs) I don't know yeah yeah that leads me to believe it was like a all hands on deck DIY type affair but yep, free for all. Just run around the flames, but be careful. Yeah, <laughs> you got your gauze on. Watch out. Well, that rem- that reminds me to mention that there is a documentary made by two fans of Moctezuma called Alucardo's something something vampire. It has a portrait of a vampire. Yes. So I guess in this film, which I looked everywhere for and I could not find it, it has to be out there somewhere, but it's made by these two fans who got to know Moctezuma when he was hospitalized, I think, for mental illness and then for Alzheimer's. And it's about his life. And then it's also kind of about his or their relationship with his films. But this article I found talks about how there is a woman in the film, who initially gets him out of the mental institute. And they think that she is the woman in the film whose face got burned during filming. 
Do you remember this? I remember reading something about that because I believe it was rumored maybe she was a friend of his when she became one of the nuns. So maybe she had some type of relationship with the director and then apparently maybe stayed in his life in some capacity. I don't know. It's interesting, though. Yeah. I, I And also we should, I'm now thinking we should also mention the screenplay for the film was co-written by a woman named Alexis Arroyo. Is that right? Yes, Alexis Arroyo. But she's another one that I have no fucking clue who she is or how she knows Moctezuma. She hasn't, she's acted in his first film and then co-wrote the screenplay for this film, but she hasn't done anything else that has credits on IMDb at least. And from what I found on a website, it a website for a DVD describes it as the film is based upon an idea of Alexis and Tita Arroyo and Juan and Yolanda El Moctezuma. So it almost made me think that maybe they were friends who were couples and they came up with this together. But there's really no information about who these people are, how they know each other. How did they come to write this screenplay together? What is Alexis Arroyo's deal? Is she still alive? I don't know. The internet is devoid of information in English. So if anyone knows anything about her or has a good article that we could read, please send it our way. Yes. It's a mystery. Yeah, so I would say that the mystery surrounding this film is is very interesting to me, almost more interesting to me than trying to suss out themes that I think are not that well executed in this film, but that there's still good things about it. I think this film is totally worth watching. Again, like I said, if you want to get a little stoned and you want to just lose your mind with something i think this is great for that i don't think though that it's something that does a lot for me in the aftermath like i'm happy i watched it i enjoyed watched watching it i enjoyed talking about it with a joe but i don't think this is going to be one where i'm going to think about the themes or the plot deeply but i will remember images from it there are certain images that will that I will keep referencing, I think. But that's really its strong suit in my mind. And Tina Romero. Yes. Tina Romero, definitely for me. She's in the forefront. Also, just the imagery. I do believe that it's a film that if I could see it in a better format, if I could get the DVD or if it came on Mumbai or Criterion Channel, and I could watch it in a decent format and maybe even hear some of the background of it, maybe I would be interested in revisiting it. Otherwise, I wouldn't, but I would say if you have not seen it, I also would recommend seeing it. It, Like Lindsay said, she put it perfectly. It's the vibe of the film. It's just don't go in there trying to get any higher message. Just go in there just to take it in. Just go with it. Go for the imagery. With that, I don't think you'll be disappointed in it at all. No, I don't think so either. I think the imagery is really cool and beautiful. The performance is good. And just go into it that way, and I think you'll enjoy it. And we would love to know what you think. If you like the movie, if you've seen the movie, 
As we mentioned, it's available on YouTube and it is a shitty version of it. So if you can get the Mondo Macabro DVD, that's the one to get. But let us know, email us, leave us a comment, blah, 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 et cetera. We thank you so much for hanging out with us. And I think we'll be back next time with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, probably. I believe so. All you horror fans out there, buckle up. We are about to go on an extended horror movie review. And we would also love, we don't have everything set in stone. We have some that we want to review between now and Halloween. And we are really going to try to crank some out for the month of October. So we would love some suggestions on films that are near and dear to your heart that we may not have already mentioned. And we would be more than willing to watch those and talk about them. It's not going to be all horror going forward, but there will be more of it in the upcoming months for sure. Yes. Yes. We will stay diverse. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. So thank you so much for listening. Let us know what you thought, and we will catch you on the next one. Satan, 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 our Lord and Master, I acknowledge thee as my God and Prince. I promise to serve and obey thee as long as I shall live. I renounce the other God and all the saints.